Welcome to Acid Horizon on Zero and Repeater. Today we're doing something kind of interesting, kind of special, something I'm very excited about. Uh, I went to my first conference in a long time last weekend. I signed on to Zoom to see this beautiful guy present on another beautiful man, Max Sterner. Now, I am a first-time reader of Max Sterner. He has floated in anarchist circles for so long. He has an almost comical but almost insurmountable online presence as the sort of stand-in for what has become uh, individualist anarchism or egoism. So Adam presented a paper at the first annual Union of Sterners conference at Duquesne University, my alma mater, a place that I learned about Gilles Deleuze, Michel Foucault, and Hegel, and Heidegger. I received my you know, philosophical education there. So it was very special to see a really good friend of mine who I work with extensively go to the place where I received my philosophical foundation. But the paper was awesome. And it is up on, if you know anything about Adam's work, Happy Hour at Hipples, a very particular version of it. Um, we'll get to that later. But I just wanted to introduce Adam. You all know him already. He does far more for this than I do. But yeah, so let's just jump right into the questions. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this kind of strange one-on-one -on -one discussion on Sterner at such short notice. I'm relatively not as self-centered as, as most as most egoistic scholars would like to present themselves, but it's always good to actually just sit down and finally get some Sterner out of there because there's so many misconceptions and so there's so many bullshit readings of Sterner. Not not in the academy so much. I mean, we saw this at the conference. Like it was so refreshing, but he's such a, a me he's so memeified yeah. that often he can be reduced to. Sort of the childish anarchist that, that lives in the heads of some of the less charitable com uh, fellow Marxist comrades of ours. Yeah, the the Engel the 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 depiction of anarchism that the strict Engelsian would carry, right? Um, so let's jump right into it, and I think we should start with the very basics. But the very basics, right, are perhaps what's under assault in uh, the unique and its property. Let's start with the question that Stirner would probably detest the most, which would be. Who is he? Who is Max Stirner? Well, uh, sadly for Max Stirner, he's inspired such a kind of a fandom, even from uh, the couple of decades after his death, that he is the only young Hegelian uh, member of that circle of whom we have a complete biography written. So, so it's a shame there. But Max Stirner is the uh, pen name of a man named Johann Kaspar Schmidt, who was born in 1806, around well, the same year that Hegel wrote The Phenomenology of Spirits and died around, oh God, late 1840s, early 1850s, apparently of an insect bite. He has an atrocious life. Um, he started off relatively okay, worked in a girls' school, got his teaching credit around the 1830s, I believe, or even probably a little bit earlier, when he got his uh, work at the, at the gymnasium. Uh, he did attend Hegel's lectures in 1828 and 1827. He attended lectures on uh, the philosophy of Geist, so his lectures on psychology, his lectures on the ages of man, uh, his lectures on the philosophy of history he also attended. Um, 
and therefore got a sense of like the Hegelian scheme, like how reason develops through history, and also you know, Hegelian psychology, Hegelian history, Hegelian theory of religion. And then he also took another course in 1841, which is much more interesting, which is he took a course with a guy called Karl Werder. Now, in the 1840s, uh, Hegel was not in fashion as he is today. You know, he's not the it. He's, he's not the it girl. We know him. We know and love him as uh, teaching Hegel was seen as kind of a political attack because it was seen as atheistic or even worse for that in time in Germany, pantheistic. And if he was going to go into the academy to teach Hegel, it might be your last time teaching. Uh, and Karl Werder was mainly a sort of a Shakespeare scholar, but he taught a class in 1841. He went back to the academy to teach Hegel, basically as kind of a you know a, a, an opening salvo of the attack against the academy itself. And he was going to teach Hegel's logic based on the theory that nothingness, not being, not pure being, as the science logic really starts with, but nothingness is the ground of Hegel's logic. And we could talk a bit about this class for ages because this class has everyone in it. It has um, Turgenev, the person who would go on to coin nihilism in his book, uh, Fathers and Sons. It had Bakunin, it had Kierkegaard, it had Engels, and of course, Max Stirner. All in the same class, all getting the Hegelian logic from the same nihilistic uh, proto-young Hegelian Karl Werder. But 1841, he's uh, already in Berlin at that point, moved out from Bayreuth. And he eventually, 1843, comes into the circle called Die Freien, uh, or Die Free, who we now know as the young Hegelian. So Bruno Bauer, his brother Edgar, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, um, Szeliger somewhat. Moses Hess, uh, Friedrich Engels. Marx really wasn't on the scene at this point. Him and Stern never met. But this, this was a crew of, oh, it's something to say revolutionary thinkers. A lot of these people were Hegelian academics who had either moved from the right end of Hegelianism to the left end, like Bauer, um, or they were just Hegelian academics who were basically in their sort of pre-revolutionary radicalism because the 1848 revolutions were a few years away, as they call it, the, the Vormers period, were trying to use Hegel to basically be a stand-in for a think of the French Revolution as it would reoccur in Germany. <clears throat> but these, these are mostly groups of disaffected academics and social radicals. I mean, we had uh, Bruno Bauer, who most people will probably only know because he wrote the article uh, the Judenfrage, which is the Jewish question, which Marx responds to in On the Jewish Question. Uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, of course, but you will know because of Marx's theses on Feuerbach, wrote a book called um, Oh, Das Wesen des Christentums, you know, the essence of Christianity and uh, like uh, the philosophy of the future. You don't need to put that in the German. Um, and Moses Hess, who wrote one of the first socialist pamphlets in Germany, um, The Holy History of, of Mankind. That uh, later becomes a, uh, an adherent of Marx's, and uh, in his own time, at least, a, a, a very strong founder of ideas of what will then be, uh, go on to be called Labour Zionism or the left wing of Zionism, as contentious as any sort of leftist formulation of that uh, ideology could be. But Stirner is entering the scene. He's formulating his ideas about this this wider literary scene he's in. But he writes an article in eighteen forty two forty three called called the Freyan, the free ones, and he describes their principle of action as, well, the, the, the principle of their philosophy as autonomy of the spirit. He enters the circle, he enters their debating sort of scene, which happens in the back room of a, of a, of a wine bar, a Weinstuber, 
called Hipples, uh, which is on Friedrichstrasse in Berlin. Not anymore, it, it's gone. But this is where all of the arguments they had. And of course, in their journals, in the uh, Rheinische Zeitung, which is the magazine that Marx edited, Stirner published early articles. And then eventually it all culminates in 1844 with the, the book, uh, The Unique and Its Property, or the German is Der Einzige und Sein Agentum, erroneously translated since 1905 as The Ego and Its Own. Der Einzige does not mean ego. There is egoism in Stirner. There is no ego. And this is really where Sterner gets his name from, the, the, the one book. He wrote another one. It was more of a compilation he edited, but this is the one book. We effectively known as, as the ego book. So that's, that's Sterner's sort of life career and the reasons why we know who he is. And of course, this can't go without saying we mostly know Sterner because of Marx and Engels' huge attack on him in what we know as a German ideology, but it's just called Sankt Max, the nickname they gave him where they, they think he's the real enemy, not Feuerbach or Bauer, that he is the real obstruction to the formulation of materialism that they want to put forward. Yeah, interestingly enough, and we'll, we'll get to, uh, to, to this question of the relationship between Marx and, and Stirner, and perhaps Stirner's position as a kind of uh, repository for attack as a sort of figure in the history of philosophy that is a kind of negative image from uh from Marx and Feuerbach all the way through to Guy Debord, right? Uh and eventually Foucault and Agamben, who have, I think, a very different view of the function of Stirner in the history of philosophy. But again, that's pretty repressed in the in the scholarship of those latter two figures. Um I, I think it's quite fascinating that uh, that Stirner is labeled and maintained as a kind of young Hegelian. But given what we know about that moment or that series of events or emergences in the history of philosophy, right, where the self-analysis of the West is one that takes place on uh, Judeo-Christian terms, often anti-Semitic terms, right, and eventually shifts uh, to, uh, at least with the Feuerbachian move, and then eventually shifts in the opposite direction towards the analysis of the category of capitalism that would essentially prevail in the Germanic uh, self-analysis or German philosophical analysis of the West, uh, Max Stirner, alongside Feuerbach and, and others, has been labeled one of these young Hegelians. But given what we know about German idealism, where does uh, St. Max fit into the discussion between the Feuerbachians, Bruno, Marx, Engels, and so on? So... So Sterner, I mean, and Jakob Blumenfeld pointed us out at the conference, actually, uh, who also have a great book on zero books about Sterner, that uh, he does, Sterner does actually respond to Marx. This is the Marx of the paper you know, on the Jewish question, because the the main camps of German idealism at this time, at least in the scenes that Max Sterner was talking about, you had the right Hegelians, who were essentially uh, on the back foot. Schelling has been sent into the academy to excoriate the dragon seed of Hegelian pantheism. Hegelianism is on the way out. The right Hegelians want to say that. They, they're, they're what uh, Larry Stepelovich, who's a great scholar of this, calls accommodationists. We can make Hegel accommodate to the religion of today. Um, you know, be it Christianity, uh, as in yeah, the German, particularly the Prussian state, because Germany is a unified nation state here. And I forget, I must just tell you the whole story. So the editor of the second edition of Hegel's Lectures on the Philosophy of Religion, 
is the young rising star of these bright, very institutional Hegelians. Now, his name is Bruno Bauer. Now, Bruno Bauer is basically sent to respond to a work of someone who is also usually associated with a young Hegelian movement, despite the fact he was never part of the circle in, in Berlin. That's a guy called David Strauss. So David Strauss writes a book called The Life of Jesus Critically Examined, says he invents all the historical biblical criticism and says, look, if you look at the history of historical data, Jesus was just a guy, he didn't do anything miraculous, he doesn't exist. And he's, he's claiming a kind of Hegelian lineage when he does this. The right Hegelians suddenly go, okay, look, Bruno, we're going to send you to read his book, and then what you're going to do is you're going to show Hegel's dialectical logic in a way that shows that you can dialectically deduce all of the uh, biblical stories, the whole biblical narrative from a dialectical logic, and therefore sort of show it to be metaphysically true. The problem with this is that Bauer does do this, but then he realizes that actually it's not that the Bible is dependent, it's not, the, it's not that the dialectical logic is dependent upon the Bible, the Bible is actually dependent on dialectical Hegelian logic, and therefore the Hegelian dialectic, the dialectic, the dialectic of historical self-consciousness supersedes the Bible, and therefore the essence of religion is revealed to be the essence of, of a critical human self-consciousness. Now that's when Bauer like, completely flips, loses teaching position, anonymously writes a text called um, I'm not translating it in the. I'm not going to say it in the German. I can't remember the full title, but it's called. It's got an amazing title. It's the Trumpet of the Last Judgment against Hegel, the Atheist and Antichrist. Now, this is the book that really launches that young Hegelian, the left Hegelian thing, where he says that Hegel actually was a French revolutionary sympathizer, and yeah, he wanted to do this grand terror of the resolving all of the old institutions of the state before the critical self-consciousness. This was kind of like a new atheism of its day. Like a bigger bow is like a Christopher Hitchens. Exactly as, in, yeah, that, you know, that's actually a pretty much isomorphism there. Um, so that's, that's where the first main pole of the Hegelian scene comes in. Second pole is Feuerbach. Feuerbach is kind of old money. Um, Feuerbach's dad is criticized as a legal, he's a legal theorist and he's criticized by Hegel in a philosophy of right. Nonetheless, Feuerbach sees Hegel as a kind of a second father figure, writes in these lovely letters, has the same kind of in, has the same, a very similar kind of idea as for Bauer, which is the, the essence of God is just the essence of man. All the qualities we love about God are actually just the qualities of man extended into infinity. And therefore, in order to eliminate the alienation we have, we need to rename everything, not in a, not have a Christian state, but have a universalist, humanist state. We all, instead of having the essence of God, we have the essence of man. So we have sort of this critical, sort of new atheist style, Bowerian sort of post theology. He's actually called by Arnold Rude, another one of the young Hegelians, who I forgot to mention. He's called the Robespierre of theology, this t- theological terrorist. Then we have Ludwig Feuerbach, the and he even says basically the word renaming. He wants to rename the Christian state, the humanist state, and basically he thinks that we all know on our heart of hearts that there's a humanist, that you know, we're only worshipping the human species, we're only doing our thing for the human species. We should have a revolution, overthrow Christianity, put man in God's place. This is the scene that Sterner enters upon. And Sterner's I mean, when he first enters it, he's fully he's fully paid into this. He thinks autonomy of the spirit, he writes these uh, papers like Art and Religion, 
where he thinks that um, yeah, that religion is is incompatible with rational freedom because it it is the super it does ultimately supersede it, and he's fully into this sort of milieu until something breaks. I think he he finally meets them in person in eighteen sort of forty three forty four, and he just sits there listening, occasionally chiming in, and just sort of biding his time. He keeps telling people he's got this this magnificent book he keeps in his drawer somewhere. But he's still very friendly with them. I mean, they, uh, they, the young Hegelians marry him, him and his uh, second wife, uh, Mary Danhart, who gave him a lot of money. Um, she uh, funded the, the milk shop that him and Bauer tried to do, this sort of like anarchist cooperative. It was, um, it was probably like quite a fun time to be in, in Berlin, actually. Yeah, it, se- it seems, frankly, it seems like it. There's this one passage early in The Unique and Its Property where Stirner suggests that there's in fact a kind of desperation in Feuerbach's maneuver to sort of seek out and retain the, uh, the, the, the highest dogmatics of Christian living and pull it down to, to the human being. Um, and in a certain sense, he's like, no, 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 no! Like there, the, the, this is not this is not an atheism. In fact, it is a remarkable and violent dogmatism. Um, but I'm wondering now, because you've given us a really, I think, a fantastic, and I've learned a lot, a fantastic history of the young Hegelians. Um, I'm wondering now if you could speak specifically to Stirner's relationship with Hegel, like because one of the most important things, uh, right, is. Um, is uh for for all of these theorists is the access that they had to particular works of hegel right so like it's important to know for example that marx got as a gift bakunin's uh copies of the logic right um also kind of violent <laughs> if you think about the relationship that they had bakunin's uh old old copies he gets to finally take them from him but um what was what was stirner's relationship to hegel in his access to Hegel's work and the way in which Hegel registered with his intellectual development. So Hegel, so when he starts writing in sort of the early early to mid eighteen twenties, his first paper is his doctoral or his te- it's a thesis you have to write for a teaching qualification. It's called uh, Uber Schulgesetz, basically on on the rules of the school, and it's very Hegelian in the sense of this idea of. People have to be developed. They are fundamentally like seeds. You have to sort of unfold and unvelop them. And to do this, they need to submit themselves to a power which sort of develops them at the same time as they develop themselves. And then they can sort of come out and be independent by cultivating what Hegel calls a second nature. Good habits where your, your particular desires become interwoven with a wider universal uh, sort of process, which is the universal process of the institutions of society that you're, you're born into. And in his early days, Stern is pretty much entirely uh, brought up with this. Um, his first writings on education are pretty orthodox Hegelian, because Hegelianism is the orthodoxy of, of its time, at least in for those 20 years before uh, Schelling is brought in. And I think Schelling's stuff is actually very interesting here, but let's bracket that out. When it comes to the time of the unique and its property, uh, Stirner has rejected Hegelianism. Uh, not in the sense... Because there's, there's, so just to clarify for the listeners, there's this, been this tradition uh, to identify Stirner as the consummating figure 
to use the meme, you know, he completed the system of German idealism. And this was a state, this was a, a sort of a point in my research for a long time. Um, and the, the best articulator of this in English is Larry Sapelovic, who basically says that Sterner is the, he consummates the ending of the phenomenology of spirit, he consummates the system. This appears as well in, in Karl Lerwiff, his book from, God, from, from Hegel to Nietzsche. Sterner's in there and says, like, yeah, this guy completes Hegel. Uh, Guy Deleuze in Nietzsche and Philosophy says, Sterner completes Hegel by reducing it to a pure I equals I sort of masturbatory egoism, or more technically a masturbatory negativity. I, I, I've been trying this for years. It, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work because the Sterner believes that the principle of Hegelianism is an autonomy of the spirits, and he doesn't believe in autonomy in the sense that of the, you know, putting yourself under a law by externalizing yourself in order to return yourself to yourself. We can also just he say doesn't believe in the philosophy of right either. He, he says that he says Hegel's system is the greatest violence of thought and its highest despotism. Now, he does say in a review of Bauer's book on Hegel that Hegel actually has no problem with this. Hegel was given man the tools to free themselves. But the problem with this is that uh, this thesis, yes, he says that once, then he goes to meet Bauer and Feuerbach and that in person, then he changes his mind and sort of they become his philosophical enemies. Not necessarily the personal enemies because they had, they were, had a great friendship, uh, especially uh, between the Bauer brothers and Engels and Stirner. But he, he, he breaks with Hegel, but he nonetheless uses a lot of Hegelian themes he took from the lectures. So the first half of the, the Uniqueness property is called Man. And anyone who's like, anyone who's sort of been, because he's writing for an audience of, the, of people who've seen Hegel speak. The problem is that He's doing this more or less to sort of present their own logic to them in a way which makes it seem kind of silly. And this is where it gets very, very counterproductive. And sometimes I'm still, I'm still writing on this particularly very bad. So there are some examples of this. So he uses Hegel's theory of the stages of life, you know, uh, childs, adolescents, adults, and then sort of how Hegel characterizes them. And he tries to subvert them for his own theory of child psychology, which we'll probably get to later. But he also tries to think of providing a Hegelian-style religious history of how different religions develop into their various others. And then that's, that also corresponds to Hegel's lectures on the philosophy of religion. So Sterner would have had access to, at the very least, all the lectures he attended, because a lot of them were circulating at that time, especially through Bruno Bauer. Uh, the logic, or at least Carl Verder's textbooks on the logic, and we know this because he had conversations with Engels, and Engels recounts them in letters that they had conversations about the science of logic. He would have probably also had a collection of the encyclopedia. So that presents all of Hegel's late system. Essentially, now that we have an account of Stirner's relationship to Hegel, we now kind of have to get into the weeds of particularly the most important functions of Hegelian philosophy politically in the history of political administration, the history of a theory of sovereignty, of a theory of right, of the theory of the civil society, which are all very important to, to Hegel's political work. So in your piece, you kind of touch on this, that in a lot of engagements with Stirner, like mm. Theplovich, for example, notably, uh, Stirner is treated as someone who completes a system or comes in and solves a problem, but in a sense is always submitted to their account of the history of philosophy, is always submitted 
to the fundamental mm. commitments of a Hegelian history of philosophy, and particularly to Hegel's philosophy of right. Um, everything from his account of the person to civil society. Um, given that the word property in the, the more mimetic samplings that we get of Sternerian intensity on the internet mm. or among anarchists, um, given that the word property plays an important role there and in the text, can you give an account of what Stirner means by that word? Because in in some ways, the foundation of the civil society uh, and its relation, importantly, mm-hmm. to the state uh, in Hegel's philosophy of right, the real important thing here is the the philosophically bourgeois notion of property that that plays an important role. And if Stirner, well, first of all, does Stirner have a, a theory mm-hmm. of property in the conventional sense and is it a theory of property that we could understand through uh, juridicality, through capital L law, through deduction? <laughs> well, uh, let's let's start with Hegel's theory of property. So a lot of the people who would want to make sort of a parallel between Stern and Hegel will typically turn to the first part of the Hegelian theory of, of rights, which you'll find in the encyclopedia, part three, the philosophy of Geist, or in the opening sections of the book itself, which expands on that, you know, outlines or elements of the philosophy of right. Now, the first part is called abstract, right? And that begins with it. So it's, it, it begins where the last parts of the system left off, which is the production of a free will. Now, what does the free will do? The free will wills the free will, but let's bracket that out for a bit. What abstract right does is abstract right wants to affirm its identity. It wants to affirm itself by essentially the idea is I know myself as free. How do I express myself that I'm free? I am free to appropriate anything around me and take it take it within myself. I am free to appropriate and I can say that thing is mine and because I can sort of mark myself on it, you know, by saying it's mine, my individuality, which is my capacity to own property and you know, my capacity to externalize myself in the world, to actually have a being in the world, a Dasein, a being there, shines back to me. The problem for that, for Hegel, is that, well, you know, the, the thing can only shine it back to you so much. You know, and the thing is, it's like the, it's very much similar to the master slave dialect. The thing can only shine back so much. You need something which is just like you in order to show, you know, to recognize you again. Yeah. Cause ha- who else is going to know uh, what it's like to own property better than something else that can own property? And so fundamentally, owning things, uh, is only possible, and therefore being, you know, having an, an individual being in this world is only possible through being recognized by another owner. Well, of course, this is how you make contracts. This, by making a contract with the other person, you can, of course, alienate your property, you can exchange stuff, and insofar as you can exchange it, be recognized as being the kind of thing that can make exchanges, you are recognized by the other person, the other party, uh, as someone who can own something, insofar as you've given it away, and you are, and you recognize them as a sort of person that can own things by giving things to them and making them their property. Of course, contracts always have disputes, and therefore we need a, a third party which mediates all such disputes, regardless, you know, only regardless of the particular character of the people who are disputing any contract, but because these particular characters can dispute in the first place. 
and therefore the particularity of any two people in a contract is preserved in the thing in the institution which adjudicates the contract. The negation is negated, the, the particularity is taken as a moment of the process of adjudication, and we have the first kinds of judiciaries. And this is the elementary idea that uh, you need institutions to mediate between particulars, and therefore the particulars, insofar as they recognize each other and the institution, can all fulfill their particular desires, their individual desires, which is for Hegel to desire to confirm oneself and one's being in the world, one's you know existence through externalizing oneself and realizing oneself and actualizing oneself through these universal institutions. Now, if Turner believed in that, uh, he would be a tied-up Hegelian. He would have no reason to call for an insurrection because he would be within the, the ethical substance and the custom of his world, and he wouldn't see anything wrong with that. Uh, he does, and therefore he does not fulfill, he doesn't believe in what Hegel calls right. And that process I'm describing is the element of right. The zone of like right, so right in German doesn't just mean rights, like human rights, but also rights, you know, the right of way, the right of passage, like law itself and rect and correctness. Element of custom as well. And of course, we have to think that Germany has a, a very developed legal infrastructure you know, because of its, the Holy Roman Empire didn't have, didn't have a high development of anything else. You know, if you want to think about it in like paradox terms, they put a lot of money into, you know, administration. Now, hey, now, Stirner does not believe that property has anything to do with, with owning things. Now, that's quite unusual. <laughs> Stirner does not believe property has anything. He says, my property is not an external thing independent of me. Property has nothing to do with, you know, you, you, I go find, uh, like, I, just, I see a cup, and I sort of take hold of it, and I go, this is mine, I imprint myself upon it, and I you know, and such that you know, my ability to own things is what I imprint, and, my, and if I give this away to someone, my ability to owe things is still recognized by them and be able to give it away. There is, fundamentally for Hegel, the property is a, a logic of self-realization in which you need to be recognized and confirmed in the other. And therefore, this universal pattern of recognition justify the institutions, justify the property, justify the exchange, and justify one's property over things, fixed objects, independent property. Sterner does not believe in right. Sterner does not believe that one can ever own something by right of logic alone. He believes people can only own things by what he calls Macht, force, power, might, maybe. Does this mean that Sterner is a might-makes-right guy? Um, if so, Rousseau, who's already got his number, doesn't make any sense. You can't have right if might makes right. Sterner does not believe in right, therefore he does not believe in might makes right. Property is however is not a thing. So if, if his property is not a thing, then what is it? It's power, okay. Power is not a thing, so what is it then? Property for Sterner is an empowerment of you. It is it, it is what empowers you. And this is this is a pun on property and properties, you know. The property of the table is that it had four legs, say, and it is my property if I use it, take hold of it, and use it, put my laptop on like I'm doing now. So Sterner does not have a theory of property based on any kind of uh, right or logical consequence or logical inference. 
because he does not believe property is anything. To, you, know, you, you do not own anything by means of an argument alone. You own things by means of a force that arguments or force generally, which establishes the very conditions of a discursive acceptability in which an argument becomes feasible. Because you can, you feel you can be free to disagree with the court all you want. Event, it, yeah, you can do that if you want to do anything about the courts. Then force will be applied to you. So Stirner's theory of property. He does not have a. So the question that we would go after this is: Does he have a theory of power? The answer is no. Uh, there are there have been some brilliant uh, ways in which you can find a theory of power in Stirner. Uh, so, for example, Jakob Blumenfeld again to mention his book. His book is probably the best theory of Stirnerian power I think you could possibly get, which is a theory of power through Spinoza. The problem with that, I believe, is that it it's very good at explaining it. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, with Jacob's way of doing it. I just don't agree with the methodology because Spinoza is a thinker of principles and philosophical principles, and Stirner explicitly rejects the idea of having any principles or axioms. So I think with, with Stirner, ultimately, I'm not going to sell the, to the audience Stirner as a philosopher. No, he's a thinker of refusal. And I think what's interesting about him is when he refuses to provide accounts of, for example, power. Because if he, did, if he was going to provide accounts of power, we know what accounts of power do. They split humans up into gradations and abilities and cons- constitute disabilities on that basis. Sterner is not interested, really, in this distinction. He does have a theory of madness, and that madness is to be captured within such binaries and discourses and really believe that they're real. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's a fun you know, the idea, the quintessential kind of madness where someone believes they're Napoleon. Well, the judge might believe he's a judge. He actually has these magic words that can do things. And of course, he, he does in the sense of performativity. But Sterner is not going to give a fear of power on this basis because power is not a question to be solved by any kind of philosophical quantification. Uh, given he, he, want, you know, he says in The Unique of Property, the workers have the utmost power in their hands. All they would need to do is uh, withdraw their labor, and the state is lost. This is not a theory of power in the sense of, you know, here's how we can quantify how much power. Power does not need right of argument or right of quantification in order to speak. Power speaks when the world stops. You know, power speaks when the, the docks are, when your ports are blocked. Power speaks when uh, your king is, is hanging by a noose. Power does not speak by right of argument. Uh, this is different, in a course, in a sense, in a democratic society when words have power. But uh, if, if you take away the police protections of, you know, uh, Rupert Murdoch or someone, the power of words may may not be a little bit shattered by this. Yeah, you know, as, as Stern says, freedom of the press is not actually freedom of anyone um, in themselves in that society. It's the freedom of an apparatus. So does Stern have a fear of property? No. But if you think about property as empowerment rather than things, then the idea that, uh, you know, when, yeah, this is a joke that Sterner will say to a person, that, you know, you are my property. That means that you empower me. It, it avoids the uh, idea of property and the sort of the colonialism of property that we get with someone like Amé Césaire, who in his discourse on colonialism, looked at thingification. Sterner, his entire theory of property is against the thingification that pins people down into uh, properties, uh, branded elements 
a bourgeois society. In some ways, there's there's kind of two two figures here that I think are are helpful. First, are strangely the Franciscans, right, and their and their notion of the highest poverty, right, where the Franciscans develop a theory of the refusal of ownership, right, as foundational to their theory of property, right. Uh, Agamben writes about the Franciscans that just as the horse eats oats without having right to them. So do the Franciscans use what they need, right? Um, and it becomes a real problem for papal authority, right? This abdicatio juris. Uh, and, you know, the other figure that I think is really important here, which we'll, we'll get to, is a kind of strange proximity to a particular French theorist who would come, you know, over, over a hundred years later and refuse a conception of power as a substance or something reducible to a force or a principle or an axiom. And yet, is often reduced to it, right? What does Edward Said reduce Foucault to? Wrongly, a Spinozist. What does Antonio Negri reduce Foucault to? Incorrectly, a Spinozist. So there's this desire to maintain, to maintain some sort of grounding, uh, some grounding principle, uh, natural, uh, namely and importantly, a naturalizing one, right? Grounded in a sort of necessity to represent the world in such a way that it could not be otherwise, uh, that persists, it seems, in this uh, Sternarian scholarship. Now, you've kind of already answered this question here in the expansive account that you just provided, but I still want to touch on it. Just because I think that it's a word that comes up a lot in those early pages. And what I want this episode to be is someone who can now just go open the book and be a little less terrified, right? So that they have some, unfortunately, anchoring points, right, to guide their way through this. So I'm going to ask a basic question. What is the fixed idea? Uh, and what is uh, Stirner's relation to the function of the human in the history of philosophy, right? What is he doing in that section on man? So, there's a fixed idea. It's it's an old term for madness, really. He says he first invokes it in the French, you know, idée uh, idée fixe, like that. I, I apologize, my French isn't, isn't far far worse than my German. Um, so Stirner is writing this book prim primarily against the Bauer and Feuerbach, um, so I say against Hess, against humanism generally, because the idea is that we have discovered the this great humanist discovery is that we have discovered man for the first time. He's God. He's the critical self-consciousness that we ascribe to God. And we need a revolution to replace God with man, have this great humanist, somewhat socialist. This is a pre-Marxian kind of socialism uh, society. Uh, Stirner says that Feuerbach has, already, has literally said that he's just renaming the current order of things. The same hierarchical structure by which the universal, abstract universal, such as the human species, uh, will therefore pose itself as fundamentally opposed to particular is is maintained. The freedom of the people is not my freedom because no one, no, the people is not a person. It is none of these people. And Stirner fundamentally does not agree with the idea that uh, there is a sublation that occurs here. There is always an outside to the sublation. And yes, this may end up in a bad infinity, but I mean, life is a bad infinity. We die at the end. I mean, Yes, life is a bad infinity. This is, this is a problem for 
Hegelians because they need things to line up in like a nice little circle. But there is also a bad infinity to constantly trying to sublate uh, the bad infinity into a good infinity. This this is why we have a Hegel revival and constant Hegel people trying to say that everything is a Galian when it isn't because Hegel himself is a bad infinity by means of his students. Fundamentally, you need to either way to refuse Hegel in order to do anything else. Now, the problem, that, that, that can usually mean just saying, Hegel's right, yep, the system's closed, you can go do something else. But Stirner's, the first part of the book uh, is called On Man, Der Mensch, and he's going to use a bunch of uh, their own tools, somewhat against them, somewhat playfully. So the first time, this is where we get the fixed idea, is in uh, the section called uh, Ein a human life or a man's life. And he goes from, it's somewhat autobiographical. So, uh, you start off as a child. The child wants, it's full of desires. It wants to reach out and grab stuff, appropriate it, you know, eat. It needs to feed, it needs to, uh, to play. Not very good at doing this, of course, but the first, the first sort of pushback it ever gets in the world is parental discipline when it's a toddler. Now, okay, it's like, okay, he's sternness in this sort of mode of, okay, the first thing a kid wants to do is assert itself or empower itself, create, gain property in the world, enjoy itself. Okay, well, it, it can't do that. Uh, the parents, the disciplinary rod puts a ba- an objective barrier between them. Okay, so that kind of provokes them to having to make other steps. Okay, what if they well, he does, he calls it, he calls getting behind the object. So, okay, uh, I can outsmart them. I'm going to use my cunning, uh, get round this objective barrier. Problem is, what do they encounter? Uh, is that they encounter not simply uh, an other, yeah, not only another object, but rather the more times they do this, they encounter the objective rationality behind the objects. So, for example, you know, the, going to church all the time, you have to, you're forced to eat the, the cracker. And have a sip of the grape juice. You're forced to sing along really stupid hymns, and you think, "Okay, I'm going to use my cunning to get behind this." Oh shit! I've got the entire system of Christianity, the theological system, the essence, the ideal of God made flesh who died and resurrected. Or you know, I'm forced to wear this stupid little uh, cadet uniform, uh, sing the pledge of allegiance, and of course, I'm going to behind this. But actually, behind this, you find the ideal, the objective structure, and the objective logic of patriotism itself, and. The idea is that these ideas become fixed insofar as they capture you. They're basically a way of, they're, they're a failed escape. A fixed idea is a failed escape. A fixed idea is basically an ideological device which is sort of built, conditioned into uh, you from adolescence or kind of any age really in which you're particularly plastic. And it reroutes your desires to empower yourself into a mode that only empowers the systems around you. And you may get some empowerment from this. This is what he calls unfreiwilliger egoismus, or uh, which is like involuntary egoism. I think you can actually describe it as subjective desire. But what it is, it's like a, it's like a negative feedback mechanism. So it channels, it basically pushes against through guilt the idea of uh, doing anything for yourself or doing anything like for you and your, your very particular mode of being. And instead redirects you towards the universal end of, you know, family, fatherland, God, and et cetera. And of course, it does give you enjoyment for this. But this enjoyment is actually counter to the very operations. Every time you enjoy, for example, you, know, you, you enjoy doing something charitably, you feel bad about it. 
something like that. They're, they're basically, it's, it's an ideological device which tries to keep you in acting in such a way that your own particular desires end up reinforcing objective structures around you. It's a, basically a, kind of a cybernetic psychological economy. Now, Scherner's sort of theory of maturity uh, here, because you know, the, the, the fixed idea comes in, it's conditioned into you from childhood, it reaches its heights in adolescence, and eventually, around maturity, you kind of burn yourself out and you reach what Hegel calls maturity, which is where the more or less the, the, the indoctrination of society, the ideological patterns of societal action become second nature to you. If they don't, Hegel says they should be sent off to America. And a lot of ideologues of German colonialism thought this too. Uh, colonialism was actually to save people from like being wasted in their own society, quote unquote. And they say they want to find like an America for them where they can recreate the German uh, normality uh, further away. Now that's the first use. That's where the like, fixed idea comes from. The second use, he gives a history of religion uh, more or less straight out of Hegel. And Hegel, Hegel's lectures on spirit and the philosophy of religion. The idea that, you know, uh, Christianity was itself a kind of atheism, a negation of other religions, or negation of, or Christianity and Judaism, sorry, were negations of pagan religions, negations of Socrates. They were following this kind of typical line of development. And of course, at the end of it, we have Christianity, the Christianity that Feuerbach believes in, the Christianity that Bauer believes in which is really has humans at the end of it. That's overthrown. Pretty boring section. Then we have the hierarchy, which begins with two paragraphs of this racial hierarchy that Hegel gives, which is essentially, uh, he called, you know, uh, basically, uh, blackness, Africanness, uh, uh, Far East Mongolian uh, Empire, and uh, Chinese uh, defense of religion, and then the Caucasian. Now, he's certainly using these in any sort of literal sense, no, does it matter in terms of like the question is not is, is this Stern to say racist things? This is a complete non-question. Of course, he did. We can see them. Uh, young Hegelianism was not a racist movement. Sorry, Young Hegelianism was not an anti-racist movement. It produced some of the most theologically tinged racisms or anti-Semitisms of that period, um, which many people would have actually rightfully fought against, but these people didn't. This is you know this isn't something we should be particularly squeamish about. The question for me is. Does that mean that the egoist character has an inherent whiteness to it? I don't think so. I think it would if he carried on with the Hegelian anthropology he's sticking with. But ultimately, he is making an incredibly uh, immoral joke to, and to try and take the piss out of the Hegelian anthropological discourses which he's already intervening in. This is a kind of baggage from his teaching, a baggage from his audience. But ultimately... Um, I don't, I don't think it bleeds into the more political outputs of the second part of the book, because fundamentally Sterner rejects any account of man. And he doesn't reject it on the basis that the, that the sort of man that he is, is the German man who can reject this. He, fundamentally, what he's doing is he's basically calling them to try and fulfill their own ideologies, but of course they can't. But I mean, there's, there's been some discourse, and it's not enough, really, not enough, because David Leopold obviously says, doesn't read. Really Develop it very much. Cedric Robertson has a discussion of Sterner quite extended in the book in terms of order, but this isn't very much mentioned. Uh, but nonetheless, he does include rightly that Sterner and the egoists generally are very limited by European worldview. Pretty much, this is a guy who didn't read particularly widely in the times in which he was reading this, and he was writing it for a specific audience, the audience of 
as I said, confounding Indian racialists. This is this is not something to get too hung up on unless we can find a connection which causes us to challenge it. And I, I invite the listener who's going to read this, keep keep that in mind because Hegelian racialism is still something we haven't really um, properly understood in terms of its implications. Not because of any sort of, you know, get rid of Hegel, but because, well, no, if it's there, it's there. And someone like Ray Tirada has done some really fantastic work unearthing this, particularly in the context of left Hegelianism. So we have that interaction with Stirner with Hegel's account of man. And then, really, by the end of it, he's, he's evacuated, by, by the second half of the book, he's evacuated all of this. He's, the end of the first part of the book is ending with uh, him doing a political debate against, he calls, three kinds of liberalism, critical, uh, which is Bauer, uh, sort of liberal, which is Hegel, and humane, social, which is Hess, to some extent Marx as well, and his theory of socialism, and uh, humane, which is Feuerbach. These are all the same argument, more or less, which is you're just replacing one joint abstraction with another, and each was going to become a revolutionary terror, which will not achieve its own aims because it cannot undermine its own dialectics. So the point is to not complete the dialectic, but to refuse outright and destroy the conditions of possibility of that very system, which you cannot do philosophically. So in terms of Hegel's account of man, uh, there's some psychological theses there I think it's good to unearth. Some other stuff which is well, might carry some philosophical baggage, but I don't think it does, purely because of Stirner's refusal later on, and some of it which is purely just him trying to reel people in, because these sort of philosophical and anthropological histories are pretty much baked into that structure of philosophy. And it's not to say I'm to minimize any of this, but nonetheless, we should know when bringing up is helpful in a discourse, not certainly productive, but literally helpful in terms of textual accuracy, and whether or not it's just something that causes a kind of blockage which won't help us understand the text, even if it could, even when it may actually end up in these worse areas. Yes, yeah, Cesare, um, Membe's critique in Necropolitics of Hegel's philosophy of right is also like really helpful here. Um, we'll probably cover necropolitics at some point on Acid Horizon because it's a it's a work of biopolitical philosophy that I think is is important. Um, uh, but it's got you know it's got a lot going on in that text. So um, yeah, that's all really helpful. Um, the next question is looking now to the fundamental contributions well contribution is a strange word for for sterner right in the history of philosophy um because i think he's a little bit more destructive than he is uh positive um but here's a concept that is central to the work that you do uh at least early in your dissertation period that i think maybe will help us here which is just what are we to understand uh by Stirner when he says when he speaks of the notion of the creative nothing you know we've seen a lot of different accounts of the creative nothing right some even now coming from Catherine Malibu um you know is this a posited arche or a sovereign foundation through which we get a conception of political subjectivity be that a classically anarchist one like of the platform or you know a, a Proudhonist or Bakuninian uh uh depiction is it something through which we can understand experience through space-time or even let's say something like loosely very loosely uh a unity of apperception um is it something like that or is it something completely different 
so it's uh, it's nothing. Uh, so I I did write a lot on this. I did use those words through the stuff I was talking about earlier with Hegelian nihilism to build up an entire theory of Hegel's theory of logic as this kind of insurgent core which bursts out at the end, and that's where Stirner is. Then that was a very innovative aspect, and I'm not. I don't think it works, but I think the the benefits of the term "the creative nothing" in German at Schöpferische Nichts is yeah, very great speech impediment to say those words. But the creative nothing is a space I think where it's best left to the reader. I think it's a space where people could actually have some great creative in- innovation. But what does Sterner mean by it? Uh, absolutely nothing. And or nothing which he's, he's hinting at, because. So the term uh, occurs twice in the unique property, neither doesn't occur before or after. Um, talks of Engels, uh, re- you know, he, he recounts that Sterner gave, gives up using he- Hegel's logic as a basis for any of this kind of work. Uh, he, when Sterner is responding to critics, uh, in, in the paper, Sterner's Critics, it's not mentioned, it's not mentioned after that. I think it is meant to be this kind of textual void where it's sort of like, by what right do you do this? The creative nothing which can't be captured in the text. This is what the unique is. I mean, the unique is uh, basically a limit condition of thought, or a limit condition of what can be described in thought. It is, it is uh, something clearly base, but not the lower part of any hierarchy. It is essentially a refusal to give an account of oneself. Because in those conditions, to give an account of oneself is to prepare oneself for a philosophical count, is to do a philosophical insurrection. Now, philosophical insurrection is uh, self-defeating because the philosophy, the only thing that is the philosophy is better at an insurrection is counterinsurgency. And therefore, why would you bother? I mean, uh, Sterner even says to Feuerbach, "These are only theological insurrections. You can you can do anything with with words have the power of uh, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of guns behind them. There was no point in really giving an account of oneself if one is pairing in the revolution moment that that Sterner's writing about for something like this. You will know when it is over, when it is over. As Marx says, we'll get, we'll make no excuses for the terror, which also means we're not going to you know send you a letter saying you know not not giving you a petition." So, it, it, the creative nothing, I think, is a beautiful space where the reader can really do some amazing philosophical work. Uh, but I don't think it means as much for Stirner. This is perfectly fine. Uh, perfectly fine. I mean, uh, for example, there's been some, I said, said we mentioned Catherine Malibu, uh, Til, uh, Tim Elmo Fighton gave an amazing presentation on this, uh, where he's using it as kind of a, a, a stand in which brings Stirner into dialogue. With kind of a dialectical systems theory, a plastic systems theory of, of integration with one's environment. And his work has been incredibly influential in how I understand property, particularly the spatial element of property. Because the German word Eigentum, Tum, is a dom, it's like domicile, it's like Christendum, Christentum. There's a spatial element there. It, it's the space in which uh, power, empowerment, the space in which we are empowered, as opposed to what Donald wants to go against, which is what he calls society. Now, society for Sterner is very technical because he thinks about it in terms of the root of the word, Gesellschaft, in the word Saal, which is a word like hall or a room. And Gesellschaft is the creation of a room which has like been made in the past and encloses you. So Eigentum is a kind of a, an empowerment without enclosure. 
this is why it's it's not bourgeois, nor is it fundamentally structured by the archaeology of any given or free pre-existing uh, system. It's only an insurrectionary gesture of thought, not a system and enclosure of thought itself. Yeah, I I almost feel like all of this, like a, of course, like guy who has only read Foucault, like reads other philosopher for the first time. No, I mean a lot of a lot of this seems to surround to surround a really really violent assault on Feuerbach, Bruno Bauer, Hegel, in a way that is really really reminiscent of what Foucault is doing with the notion of the historical a priori. And in fact, maybe there is a certain uh, there's a space for not just an account of Foucault's anarchism and Stirner's anarchism, but almost a methodological set of commitments or anti-methodological set of commitments uh, as it pertains to to the relationship to the very to the very violent relationship to the, that they have to this loose notion of the history of ideas, right? Um, so anyway, again, uh, that's just two cents. Um, there. So now that we've got Sterner, let's talk a little bit more about like the specifics of your paper. And again, we will link uh, the the playlist for all of the presentations at the Duquesne conference on on Sterner. It's remarkable. I obviously suggest you check it out, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in your paper. And this is a theorist who we've engaged with extensively. We have a reading group going on on him uh, over on on our our Patreon. Uh, you connect Bataille's concept of base materialism or base matter to to Stirner. Can you extrapolate on how you see not just as it pertains to this kind of metaphysical or sort of metaphysical notion in Stirner, uh, in in Bataille, uh, not just that, but how Bataille and maybe even his notion of sovereignty and, and the rest, uh, fun, is fundamentally related, you think, in, to your reading of the ethic or even ontology of Stern. So, so just to, to, to clarify in terms of any discussion I sort of give on Sterner and Bataille, I'm not trying to make Sterner a Bataillean, just to put him under the command of Bataille's that will become shaped by that. I see them as comrades because they're both looking to escape the same thing. That Bataille is trying to escape Hegelian anthropology, and then he's trying to find the kind of a, a matter which is not confined within discourse and the forces of, of enslavement and mastery, which forced them to stay in there. So base matter is a concept which doesn't really stay with Bataille for very long, and in my opinion at least, comes in this, this very small, short paper, Base Materialism and Gnosticism, which you get in Visions of Excess, amongst other uh, collections. Base matter is essentially uh, uh, the insubordinate character of matter. He calls it a non-logical difference. The ultimate matter, which is always different from any hierarchy or ideal, and it indeed is the very thing which is, is based upon it. Uh, ideals are constructed by uh, humans, constructed by humans arranged in sort of modes of power, who arrange themselves in such modes of power. But fundamentally, the, the, the hierarchies or the, the binaries of high and low are actually based on something which is lower than low, a base matter which isn't even con conceivable in those terms. And Sterner thinks about it in a similar way, because Sterner, he's a big partisan of, of the unmen, the inhuman. Because Sterner's fundamental argument is that uh, humanization, the, the creation and policing 
of an ideal category of human qualities, therefore sets a, a, a decision in which things are outside of that boundary. The formation of a human creates the inhuman. However, all of us, by the, 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 the abstract standards of this quality, are inhuman. The problem is that we're implanted with these fixed ideas which tell us that we need to realize these qualities in ourselves and become one with, you know, the God-man, the, the universal man. The problem is, if you take God out of that, you, you don't really have the whole eternal life thing that Kant needed to get you there as an assumption. You still act as if that's true, though, because it's just, it's just a programming for Sterner. Sterner's fundamental critique of humanism is that humanism creates dehumanization. The, the, the capital M, human, of the human species is no one. And also, who the hell can speak for the species? And therefore, why can Feuerbach do this? Why can Kant do this? And this is why I think there's such a, a, a great coincidence with uh, Sterner and Césaire, because Césaire's writing about French European humanism and colonial humanism and saying, look, by being yourselves up as this formal humanism, you know, this, you've renounced your any duty to your own thoughts, and actually, if, because you think of yourselves as higher humans and thus as inhumans, then you can do whatever you want to us, and you dehumanize yourselves in fulfilling the, go- the directives of your so-called humanity. To quote Cesare, at the end of formal humanism and philosophical renunciation lies Hitler. When you correct, when you start policing the boundaries of man, you make. Uh, you make things of them both, and you make them objects to be controlled, dominated, and destroyed at will of these uh, abstract ideals, these, he- these he- hegemonic ideologies which serve to reproduce a hegemonic objectivity and turn men into things. So, to, uh, to conclude that thought, as I've just gone a little bit, the, the Stenarian's sort of rejection of humanism is, is fundamental to the whole project. He even says that the book is against humanism in a later article, not even about philosophy itself. Yeah, I think in a certain sense this is really important, right? Because the, the history of philosophy has always struggled with the Anthropos, right? And the boundary of the Anthropos. Um, well, not struggled. It's had a very fucking easy time producing a zone and state of exception. Um, in fact, it revels in it, right? In the definition, extension, contraction, redefining of what constitutes the human being, right? And this is in a certain sense, like it's very telling that Agamben's work on this history, uh, Man and Animal, his book, The Open, right? Which is in a certain sense, a critical engagement with Heidegger, Bataille, Kojev, you know, uh, and it's a work of biopolitics at the same time. He opens with, uh, with Kojeb's, uh, uh, or Bataille's, you know, tussle with Kojev in footnotes throughout their respective histories. Um, and, and ends with an assertion that the establishing, the establishing of an ontology is not an apolitical or pre-political, uh, uh, pre-political, um, function, right? That ontology is, frankly uh what and how things constitute the real right so for example with hegel uh there is no there is no personage without the establishment of a theory of property which necessitates a civil society which necessitates a state to ensure it um or for marx or for not for marx for kant uh right the production of maxims and the capacity to produce maxims is essentially 
what allows for uh, essential ethical human interaction, right? And Kant has a long history of remarkably ableist comments um, that certain theorists who are trying to save Kant desperately in a failed attempt, like Mars the Nussbaum, you know, even John Rawls, but John Rawls reproduces these problems, right? Uh, but anyway, the, so yes, I think what what it, what's really interesting here is is Stirner's identification of of humanism as the production of a state of exception, right, or of a zone of exception, or a, or or the boundary of the anthropos. Um, but again, <laughs> another episode, another discussion. So finally, and perhaps this is this is connected, and in fact, no, it is. Is you spend some time taking a look at the relationship between anarchy and abnormality. Does Stirner have a theory of abnormality? And what does his account of insurrectionary anarchism have to do with it? Normality only in the sense of inhumanity, because he, he's, he is, the dialecticians will win this one, because insofar as he's using this language, he is tied up with the object she is attacking. That is not particularly a new or novel or interesting point. Um, you know, it's like saying, yeah, we, we are tied up with the things we're attacking. Fantastic. Uninteresting right. dialecticians? Um, what? Uh, yeah, it's fundamentally unserious point, but let's just uh, return to it. The abnormality that, that Sterner is talking about is pure, is raw particularity, is base, base particularity. It's the fact that you will never be fully encompassed by any uh, categorization of you or flattening the map. It's very similar to saying the map is not the territory. And therefore, you know, it's the enforcement of the map upon the territory, the categories onto things, is a space which requires a political contestation. Uh, it fundamentally requires political contestation, otherwise we surrender it to a, a false objectivity and people get left by the wayside who are defined as abnormal in, sort of, in a kind of a second-order sense. Because we're all abnormal, but creating a zone of exception where you know the degrees of separation which put you over the line, or even out of the category, out of the, content, out of the continuity, and therefore the community of the human entirely, those are what Sterner's really scared of. I mean, you can see this actually in his critique of some of the other socialists of his time. So uh, the socialist Wilhelm Weitling, uh, he, he basically says that he quotes Weitling at length and says, and Weitling basically says, look, crime is something to be cured. And then Stender says, my God, that's worse. In a way. <laughs> like, the criminal at least has the dignity of a criminal, but crime and the cure are two sides of the same coin here. You're just actually entrenching the logic even further. And insofar as one considers you, know, rather, than, rather than a bad man, you are a sick man. Well, who, you know, hoops decides the sickness, hoops decides the boundaries of man, and what if this is actually us revolting against a society which needs to be revolted against? Now, of course, we don't have to say this is always necessarily a bad thing. I mean, um, you know, it's a, I, I don't, I have to treat my glass as a thing. Fair enough. That, that's, that's not particularly what Dern is going at. He's not giving a full category of thinghood or full explanation of thinghood. Ultimately, the, his, his, his refusal to do philosophy in these examples is the leaving open of the space for political, where philosophy can refuse to have, at least in the way he's thinking about philosophy, which is this. So Hegelian philosophy at the time is like, it's, well, it's always heavily prescriptive, even when it's retrospective. It's like, okay, look, philosophy, as Hegel says, only shows up too late. 
but we still know from what came before that we have you know achieved this great this greatness and we know this dialectic we know we know the institutions are present are justified things can change but they will change under the gaze of the philosopher after this or the established dialectician and not not until we have sort of you know sanctified it that philosophy in a sense is a an abnegation of the political whereas Derner really wants to leave open that space of raw contest. He wants to kind of throw a hand grenade into the discussion. And to that extent, it's this is one of the things I like about Sterner. He, he does he does kick philosophers out of philosophy a little bit. I mean, when when the Oxford Revolution happened, they didn't have to get they didn't they didn't sort of the, the October Revolution and the writing down the paper to, you know, like a, a the Menshevik saying, uh, fuck you, see we did it. That that, that paper was was not itself the October Revolution. The mapping of it in a dialectical progression or philosophical argument is, is secondary to the taking of power through a, an agency of the proletariat who don't need to speak. They simply take and they enjoy and they expend their finite lives upon this earth in a manner which is, yes, maybe tired of what they're attacking, but what they're attacking deserves to be attacked as the thing suppressing them. And if you have to keep attacking that again and again, then more power to you. Not to say that Stern is a kind of Trotskyite permanent revolution theorist here. It's just he, his concerns are restricted to this opening up the space for the political and the insurrectionary to attack. Because the insurrection for Sterner is something which does not set itself in institutions, but is the constant struggle for, for self-arrangement. And that, that knackers people out, fair enough. But this is this is simply a gesture, I think, which which is needed even to get to that point, even where we have to slow down eventually. All right. Well, that's that's perfect. And that's a wrap. <laughs> Again, I'd like to thank you for doing this on short notice. Um, you know, we we literally, I made these questions maybe six minutes before we pressed record or something. So this has all been very shotgun, but it's been a remarkable discussion. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Adam. I think you're <laughs> a great scholar and an even better friend. So... Uh, oh, we- Although, thank, thank you for the second part. A great scholar. I feel like I'm feeling a shot. So. And then again, it's, it's okay. You're not going to see me throwing any bricks. Uh, at least not, at least not masks or anything in front of the officers watching. Because generians have always been seen as very dangerous, even by doctors. They used to do uh, case studies on them. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Sterner, Sterner actually appears in Nordau's account of degeneracy briefly, uh, in relation to, yeah. So we can talk about that some other time. Um, so. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, again, we will provide a link to Duquesne's remarkable conference on Sterner. We really hope that there is a subsequent, uh, annual, uh, union of Sterners wherever and whomever may be able to host it. Uh, perhaps I will submit a paper. Who knows? Now that I'm reading Sterner. Um, so again, thank you so much. Uh, we'll put all of the links in the description to Adam's paper and everything. So, all right. Take care. We appreciate your support of the imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.